everybody. Welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. My name is Brian Sobolewski, and I am your host. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1, Altered Man. And uh, we've been talking about this episode for a while. Welcome, everybody, to the beginning of yet another Family Jewels Podcast season. So, I don't know. Am I going to do this like typical TV shows? Because if you look at t- uh, typical TV shows, they do a Season 1, which is usually like 6 or 12 episodes. That's, you know, the test. And then, you know, if the show does well, it goes up to 24 episodes for a couple seasons. And then once they have to start paying out big money, they bring it back down to a reasonable, like, 12 number. But, you know, episode 5 of Season Bad, they split into two. So they ran it for six years, but Season 5 was split into two. Fuck you. (laughs) That pissed me off so much, because right in the middle of Season 5, they're like, you gotta wait another, I don't know, two years or some shit you have to wait for. And look at how long we've waited for Better Call Saul. So I wasn't going to do that for you to you guys. Um, and I hope you've watched both of those shows because uh, I imagine that if you like this podcast, you're a big fan of those shows. But on to and uh, upward with season three. Um, I am very excited to announce that I have found all of the notes that I had compiled over literally, uh, it's got to be a couple of decades, that helped me explain to you the type of therapy that I went through that saved my life. Uh, I will tell you right now the reason that I sit here right now alive and well and not still locked up for something else is because of determinism. And determinism is a type of therapy you cannot find anymore and it, it took its name from a type of philosophy that... Uh, that delved into whether or not your life was determined or whether or not uh, you had free will and you determined your own destiny. Determinism does not believe in free will and does not believe that uh, you make decisions of your own free will and testament. So I have tons of notes to read to you guys and tons of things to go over because in all of the notes and in all of the stuff that I compiled about the therapy that I did, every sentence in and of itself could be an episode. So, this was integral in helping you guys understand the type of person that I am. Now, it's very difficult for me to to describe that singly, in a single episode. So, last episode, you got a lot of my twisted views on, on things. But this is going to be a little bit more depth, in-depth on the specific changes that I believe were caused by the life that I've led. Now, do I point to specific events? I can't, because I don't know that anybody that looks at this timeline can't be like, oh yeah, of course you ended up there. I don't know that anybody from my past that listens to this podcast, anybody from high school that knew me, I was a bag of shit. I was stealing back then. I was stealing weed from you. I would any if you put it in front of me and I liked it enough. Goodbye. I'm taking it unless I I was afraid of you. So I know I never stole from Tommy Blaine. Richie accused me of stealing from him when we were down in Miami, but I did not. To this day, to this day, I'll tell you I did not. But it didn't make me less of a shitbag because I had done plenty of other stuff and would I would steal something from you and then help you look for it. That is my gig. That was my gig. I actually did that. I stole a watch in, God, it had to be second or third grade. I think it was Miss Ruskowskis' class, the sweetest old lady that ever I ever had in third grade, and Mark Berdachowski, a lot of Polish people in my neighborhood. That's one of the reasons why we moved there. Um, he had this silver watch that, oh my God, did I love it. It was the, the shiniest thing that I had seen since those little tiny knobs on my mother's makeup drawer my makeup to her makeup table that I wanted to steal but could never figure out how to get the screw off the back. I love this and it was a digital watch and had like an elastic silver stainless steel band or pl- I don't know what kind of metal it was it was probably just regular steel not that stainless steel is any better but and I stole it I took it put it in my pocket and then helped him look for it. Yeah. That that third grade so, you know, I don't know, but, you know, what intervention comes along and turns Bri, turns Bri around from that. So I don't know that you, you 
sit back and this is a story of, oh, well, good boy gone bad. No, bad boy gone bad. I've always been different. I've always, like, wanted to take that little shiny trinket and, and keep it for myself so I could look at it and get the feeling that it gave me, that everything was just going to be okay if it was shiny. I wished that I was shiny. I wished our house was shiny. I was, I suffered from a level of materialism because any time somebody bestowed something expensive upon me, I equated it to love because there wasn't a whole lot of other displays. So you're talking about, you know, the way you would describe how a caged animal comes out and goes into society. I mean, that's what I was. I was always the Omega everywhere I went. And damn. So those of you that know me now, you know, uh, uh, multiple times I have been accused of, you know, hey, you're a very big personality and you own a room. That's because of years of my life, decades of my life, spending time in the shadows being back, afraid to speak up, afraid to say my opinion, afraid to talk to girls, afraid to talk to guys. I was afraid of everybody and afraid of everything, males and females. And I was afraid, I was afraid of being close to you because you'd leave me. But I was more afraid that if you got close to me, that you'd stay. And that's one of the fucked up things that I realized and was hit in the face with you know, my first couple of weeks in therapy. So, you know, I, I definitely want to pick up where we left off, right? I walk out of prison, I hug my mom, and I am uh, altered. That hug changed me and made me angrier. I was angry to the point that I didn't even know how angry I was. So one of the episodes that I uh, used the cover photo, it was my license, and I talk about it in the episode. I don't know, something in season two or three. No, this is season three. Um, where I show the, the picture is the day after I got out. So after I got out of Pondville State Correctional Institute, <laughs> Institute, I graduated, drove directly to Bun's house, and Bun was waiting and, you know, oh, it's a big welcome home, blah, blah, blah. Welcome home, meaning Bun was there, and that was it. My uncle wasn't there, although Bun had managed to get his car because he was getting a new car. I managed to get his gold 1988 Thunderbird, Ford Thunderbird. It was gold. I look like a... Gold! I mean, is anything more ironic? I just got out for stealing jewelry, and I'm popping into a gold... It looked like what an idiot former jewel thief would buy, but he would put flames on it. <laughs> so, um, um, but I can't drive this thing. Now, understand that my uncle is, you know, maybe the cheapest man on earth. And, and that is a bold statement. We've all seen it. But this man lives in Medford, Mass. Has, I think, the highest status he status he ever reached was selling magazine subscriptions or something. He's published a couple of articles in hunting magazines, but he's never hunted in his life. Very, like very, I want to say eccentric, but when I think eccentric, I think, you know, having sex from a chandelier and that is not him. He's married to the same woman his entire life, Gloria. This is, a, my uncle is a man that punched um, one of the uh, band, there was a live band at my dad's wedding and this guy during a break the guitarist I believe was swearing and Dennis didn't like it and punched him right in the mouth I remember I was in the front of the house it was at my stepmother's house and this is why I'm addicted to stepmom porn because my stepmother was hot man, my god, oh my god sorry, that was a really weird admission but hey, it's season 3, we're talking psychology we're getting it out but we, I was in the front of the house because there was a crowd in the back. The whole back, this they had like five acres, my stepmother's family. And they lived in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is one of the first schools, high schools, that I went and talked to when I, when I wrote Family Jewels, the book, and wanted to go around and use it as a tool. And I've had that discussion with you. 
This guy comes running around to the front. I'm standing there looking up. I was really young, looking up at him. He's bleeding profusely from the mouth. He's like, oh my God, the guy just hit me. He hit me. Like he was as shot. Like who punches somebody at a wedding for saying a swear? Like, I, And again, I wasn't there. My dad eventually comes around and, uh, you know, the whole situation, my, my stepmother was a nurse, takes him inside, fixes him up. And back then you could punch somebody in the face and get away with it. Now you're going to do five years for aggravated assault. Seriously, don't punch somebody. Don't just don't because, uh, oof. like, like with as crazy as the prosecutors are getting with what they're trying to charge people with Santa today would be charged with aggravated home invasion. And they would think of a charge for somebody that put something of value into your house, like, like <laughs> gift placement, uh, <laughs> aggravated gift placement. It's insane. So um, that's a little snapshot into into the type of person that is the brother to my father. Um, so when I say that this type of therapy that I did uh, saved my life, it helped me tap into an anger that I think all of us Sobolewskis had. All the Sobolewskis male were uh, um, afflicted with this... Uh, it, you know, not uncommon, you know, we males typically have our issues, right? I mean, we're told that's how we're supposed to deal with our emotions. Um, and and for me to, to get angry in my house was dangerous, unless you were big. Kev could get away with being angry, but if I decided that I was going to show my displeasure at the way that things were going on, I'd get whacked. I'd get hit. So we're talking about how this life has changed me, how prison has changed me, how robberies have changed me. I think we need to go specifically. So I think walking into these robberies, my psychological makeup at the point was, hey, I would really love to belong to the alpha crowd. I really, really would. It would be wonderful to to finally feel what it's like to to have an equal standing in a trio that I've never really been part of. I, it was never really a trio. It was my dad and my brother, and I got berated for all of the physicalities that I lacked. So when we built dad's house in Groton, man, it was, hey, idiot, why can't you lift up that rock? Oh, we got to lift up this heavy thing. Bri can't do that. So have him stand off to the side and, you know, like I say, dust, you know, dirt off Kev's face if he needs it. I would stand there and hold the hammer while Kev slammed the, uh, hold the nail while Kev slammed the hammer. And, and um, it was, I hated it. That's why I call it slave labor camp. And they were they were two big angry guys. My my brother had an angry pro anger problem, and so did my dad. But my dad never hauled off and punched somebody at a wedding. I can tell you that. My dad was never outward with his anger. There were a couple of those incidences as a kid that my dad uh, was physically abusive to me. I don't know if he was with Kev, although I had discussions with Kev, and Kev has said no. And then dad sort of just, like everything else that dad has done, when, when he decided that smoking was unhealthy, he stopped. When he decided that drinking was unhealthy, he stopped. When he decided that drinking was healthy, he started back up. <laughs> um, he started smoking cigars again because, oh, they're not cigarettes. I mean, there was the mentality there, but dad could shift gears like no one else. And to some extent, uh, Kev has that. I do not. I'm on or off. And I'm mostly on, depending on, on what situation you put me in. So, I before I can hop in to my Ford Thunderbird, <laughs> before I can pop into that bad boy, um, I think I actually looked into putting aftermarket rims on this gold Ford Thunderbird. 1988. I love that it was 1988, because that's the year I graduated uh, high school. So my very first day, the first trip was to go and get my license. So me and my sister ended up leaving and left my mother at my grandmother's to lay on the couch because that's all my mother could do. She was at the point where the, the treatments were making her so sick, so sick that uh, she couldn't do much for very long. 
and she was always depressed and the pain was was you know getting to unmanageable proportions without significant amounts of painkillers which put my mom in a comatose state so the the look on my face when the registrar snapped that photo of that day that I got my license but the problem was I couldn't get it right away so I go early in the morning to uh, right when we got out of prison it wasn't early in the morning it was probably around 11 o'clock the registry says hey you have unpaid excise taxes and for those of you that don't know what an excise tax is, it's a tax in Massachusetts that they were like, hey, we need to tax people more. Let's come up with a, I, it's, if you look up the definition, it's the right to drive and park and keep your car in the city that you live in. So wherever it's parked, the city is saying that that is in our city. And because you keep it there, we're going to charge you $25 per thousand that it's worth as an excise tax. Every year you got that bill. You just bought a new car. It was $30,000. You got a three, I don't know, 25 per thousand. That's a lot of money. You got a lot of money. And then every year it tapered down because your car depreciated. So then you got a, you know, the fifth year you had your car, you got a, you got a bill for 25 bucks. And you're like, woohoo, 25. But it was still 20. What the fuck is an excise tax, man? Come on. <laughs> So I had to go pay, I don't know, a decade's worth of those because I was the typical person. It was so funny. Me and my brother had this way of saying, hey, I don't like what this letter says. Toss it over your shoulder and move on with your life. The consequences, you know, were, were far-reaching, but not until 10 years. Like, what the fuck did I care? I, was pay I had to go and pay excise taxes that they couldn't even locate the bill. This wasn't back when, you know, everything was digitized. I had to go to City Hall to some office of the excise tax general and they oh no that's it that's uh those excise taxes were 1986 had to be couldn't be before then because i didn't have my license i was 16. yeah i hadn't paid excise tax since i started driving i was like fuck this i ain't paying that i need this money for weed so she the, when i went there they're like oh no this bill's way too old. We don't have it here. You got to go all the way to Brighton or something to some old ancient room where they had, you know, all delinquent bills. So Jess had to drive me there. Now it's like, oh my God, are we going to get back to the registry in time? Because I got to get my license because Jess has to take care of mom. I can't leave the state of Massachusetts. Mom lives in New Hampshire and I'm on probation. So this is a mad scramble to try to be able to get the freedom that's going to allow me to drive around again, which is a little overwhelming. It's really overwhelming to be out. Holy shit. It's like you would think you'd get out and you'd have a party and the paranoia is is unbelievable. Post-prison paranoia, when you would think that you don't feel any, you shouldn't feel any more paranoia, you're done. You know, they know what you did. No, it's this fear of, I, I wouldn't go to the mall. I needed everything, but I wouldn't go to the mall. I wouldn't go inside the mall. I would go to any store that was the out, that was on the outside rim of the mall. Under no circumstances would I go inside the mall and down any hall and get deep inside the mall. Never. I, it was terrifying. It was an agoraphobia. It was a prisorophobia <laughs> because it was this fear that totally unrelenting fear that I would be at a Cinnabon and someone would come and rob it and I would get jammed up and go back to prison. That I would be at, uh, <laughs> at anywhere, the Gap. <laughs> Jesus, it was, so I only would go to Dick's Sporting Goods, which at the Square One Mall in Saugus was right out. It was, it, it, you could go inside the, the door and it was almost separate from the mall, but attached. I wouldn't, it was very difficult for me to go into any banks. Anxiety provoking. The only place that I felt safe going to that had any amount of people or any type of crowd was the Salem Willows, which I don't know what state the Salem Willows is in now, and I don't know how many of you remember it, but it was just, it, it's so hard to, like, you have to follow 1A, and 1A broke off from 114, and blah, 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 you get, it's a hard place to get to, but it was right on what, whatever coast Salem has, which Salem doesn't have much, you, you don't really think of Salem as a coastal town, but it is. And it was a place where there was an amusement park and always kept an arcade open. And there was a uh, one arcade, one building was um, 
skee ball and those you know penny games that you get tickets and you can go for a five thousand ticket you can get a plastic ring that cost less than a penny <laughs> but then there was this other thing where you could get high and you could go and play all the games it was a superman game that i loved um all <laughs> me blaine richie tommy chris Dwayne, um sometimes glenn but glenn was too smart um and on his way to bigger and better things to hang out with us uh peter just we would all just go and 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 hang out man and it was open it was like a boardwalk and the popcorn there it's please there was little bits of crack in it uh because it was just it would beckon you there was saltwater taffy that they made right there that was just delicious it's saltwater taffy man it's just a big wad of sticky in your face but so nostalgic and that was the only place I would let the person, who, is, who will remain nameless, uh, take me. So I had a friend, a female friend, who came down my first night because I couldn't get my license. I had to go pay that excise tax bill and then chase that all over creation. So by the time I got that done and paid $700 in ta excise tax bill, I never owned a car that was worth, at that time, a thousand dollars so you're talking about multiple years of ignoring and and tax liens and <laughs> it was crazy and but it's what it made what always has amazed me as the state of massachusetts doesn't give a fuck how long it takes to get you but they'll get you man <laughs> they will get they're very patient the law's patience is is uh unbelievable it's really unbelievable so that night i'm stuck at Bun's house. I'm not going to be stuck in an 83-year-old woman's house all night. My first night out of prison. So I had a female friend come down. And we went out. And we went to the Salem Willows. And I had a piece of pizza for the first time. Like an actual piece of something that wasn't a facsimile of pizza. There was one or two times I had pizza in prison that... Um, you know, it could have been a Ritz cracker with ketchup on it and imitation cheese and anybody in there would have given you a blowjob for it. And But then you get out and that was the thing I went right after. Good pizza. And they had a little place down in the Salem Willows. It wasn't the best in the world, but that's what I wanted and it was decent. So, went there and brought... She came back with me and stayed at my grandma's house so that the next morning she could take me to the registry. So it wasn't that day that I got out that that license picture is from. It is from the next day. But my point in all of that is how angry I look. I didn't know how angry I was regardless of how many people went out of their way to tell me. I had such an attitude and such a chip on my shoulder, mostly because it was a frightened, cornered animal type of anger, biting sarcasm. And you guys know it. You know me. You've listened to the podcast. You know I have the sarcasm. And in as much as I've been able to tame it and rein it in, has taken me a lifetime because the type of therapy that I did taught me that anger is stored like toxic waste. And that your brain does its best to try to take a spoonful and dump it. <laughs> like when you think of Shawshank Redemption where he was just dumping little bits of dirt every single day. Well, that's what we do with our anger when you're in traffic. That, that traffic is from anger from decades ago. Childhood, maybe. So, if it wasn't for the acknowledgement of that anger way later than we are in this storyline. So all of the therapy that I'm talking about, I didn't go into until well after my mother died. And I didn't meet Bob until um, about a year after mom died. So I get my license, get in my 1988 gold Ford Thunderbird and start driving around, man. I start driving around trying to do my thing. So the first thing I got to do is check in with probation. I go into probation. I go into Salem Mass District Court. And it was a it was a pleasure always going into Salem. I love Salem. I would retire in Salem. I would go back and potentially face those dreadful winters because Salem's just such a great city. Salem, Massachusetts, kick-ass city. So, I get a... Uh, I get into probation and I meet um, 
my probation officer. Alba Nunez. Alba. Alba Nunez. Uh, Latin, I think, as the name suggests. And she was just such a bitch. Again, folks, I get it. I get that she sits in front of 90,000 shitbags a year that all hand her a bunch of bullshit. Her job, this is what her job is. I don't know what they get paid a year, right? I don't know, but this is what you're paying for. This is the whole probation system. I was on double secret probation, maximum, maximum probation. So I had to show up twice a week. You got to show up twice a week. She sits down and tells me. So she sits down. She says, how you doing? Uh, you got out uh, 24 hours ago. And I, I was like, yeah, a little less. And she goes, well, where you been? You were supposed to. You're supposed to check in right when you got out, she tells me. <laughs> You're supposed to check in right when you got out. Who? Who was charged with letting me know that information? I think I signed something that said I would check in, but there was no, or at least I didn't read that there was a time restraint on, or a window that I had to check. It was like fucking cable. Oh, you have to check in on probation between 2.30 and 5, and somebody has to be there or you won't get cable. So you got to check in twice a week, and she says, uh, you know, these are some pretty serious charges. I'm like, why does everybody keep reminding me of this? To this day, I understand that they're serious charges. I get it. I was in prison, lady. I get it. So wh why the reminder? Let me. Do These are serious charges. I'm tattooing somewhere on my body. Um, just <laughs> so you know, I I get it. And I was like, yeah. Um, I said, uh, listen, twice a week's going to be very difficult because my mother is sick, and she puts her hand up. She shushes me. She says, uh, we're not going to talk about that right now. I need you to be f gainfully employed. I need you to be full-time employed. If I call you at any time to do a drug test, you drop what you're doing and you go and you get that drug test. If you don't, I'm violating you. You need to bring me a piece of mail every single time you come in. And I got to come in twice a week. All right. I'm like, okay, well, here's a piece of mail and I'll bring this next time. She goes, no, it can't be the same piece of mail. She didn't accept the piece of mail that I gave her because it was a credit card offer. It needed to be something like a utility bill. I didn't pay any of the bills at my grandmother's household. I couldn't provide her with that. So on this, we go back and forth about what the fuck constitutes a letter that she'll accept. So now I have to go out and find a way to generate mail on a regular enough basis to satisfy her. Okay, why? Because at any point I could walk in there and say, yeah, I live there and I don't. So when they're looking for me, they can't find me. But listen, guys, this provision, this protocol doesn't make any sense because it's never, ever going to work. It's ne You're never going to find me there if I think you're looking for me. Right? So, so when randomly can you show up at my house as a probation officer? Never. The only power she has is to gather enough information that I am violating the conditions of my probation enough that she can suggest sending me back for the rest of the three years that I was on probation. So I had three years probation and I'm on double secret maximum probation twice a week. Got to bring a letter that I don't know how. Who gets mail twice a week, different letters from places that are established businesses within the community that will prove that they mailed it to me that, you know, like, why well, I still can't have that. Like, what if I moved from my grandmother's but still had those letters sent there from Salem State College, which is where I ended up enrolling? Get this. I go right into a psychology program at Salem State College. Get, I mean, I was Phi Beta Kappa at, um, <laughs> I was Phi Theta Kappa at New Hampshire Technical Institute. Phi Theta Kappa, um, who received his pin while facing felony charges. I had, <laughs> I had outstanding felony charges. The day I was pinned by Phi Theta Kappa for uh, excellence in education for my uh, associates in substance abuse counseling. <laughs> my head was shaved. I looked like I was on the run. Pale as a motherfucker getting, getting, getting pinned. Um, but I enrolled there and I enrolled full time. I took, uh, you know, they suggest you take four, but I took five, I, maybe even six. 
I was taking statistics one my first semester, which I'm sorry, math made me crazy. And uh, I just got out of prison and I already had an anger problem. Don't add statistics. So regardless of, of the credit load that I was taking, it was not satisfiable for the conditions of my probation. I had to work full-time and full-time student did not count. Why? I had to study, man. I, I didn't have to study that bad. <laughs> it was a psychology degree, guys. Seriously. Just write some shit, some crazy shit down on a paper. Write the, I just wrote the opposite of what I was thinking. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was psychology to me. I'd like to kill everybody right now. I don't want to kill anybody right now. I mean, I found that degree fascinating. The problem with a psychology degree is it's so broad. It's really like a, a um, it's a regular general studies degree. It's nothing. It's like a liberal arts degree. Hey, liberal arts, we're going to just give you a little bit of everything because you just can't focus. So here's some art and some, you know, very difficult math <laughs> and gym. Like, let's make you a well-rounded student. And the, all of the college curriculum come from the times that people like John Locke and philosophers went to colleges and studied everything because, you know, philosophy was the study of literally fucking everything. So a philosophy degree is probably a little bit more diluted than any psych degree would be because psychology is an offspin, is, <laughs> is like the... Uh, what is what is the word I'm looking for? The spin-off of philosophy. It was born from there. As soon as we started asking, our, our, is human existence, uh, are we different from other species by degree or are we a, a completely different kind would be the first, you know, thing you would wrestle with maybe in a philosophy class. And from that is born psychology. So I loved, I loved wrestling with all of that stuff that I learned and keep in mind, I went in with a three-year degree of reading prior to. I had read Freud, Jung, Erickson. Um, my favorite was John Locke. I loved him. I read him as psychology. I read him because there was just so much of what he said and so much of it that is incorrect, but just got you thinking. And it forced me to go from the brain that Kev has, which is A plus B equals C. Do not talk to me about any other part of that process other than, you know, we start and finish. There was, Kev can't flirt in abstracts. I only flirt in abstracts. I have very tough time with absolutes. So probation says, no, you're going to be working full time. Fuck all. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> I hated it. I hated her. She was just so nasty. And again, all right, so maybe I can win her over. No, at no point did I win her. No time did I go in there. I walk in and I could sit down and, and oh yeah, and the fee. Probation is really just about getting the fucking fee. So now I'm getting the ex-con tax. <laughs> they called it a probationary fee, which was $90 a week which I would have to give in a cashier's check. They did not take cash. They will not take a personal check. They would only take a cashier's check from Reds. Was it Reds? There's a smoke shop not far in Salem Square. Um, it's an Army-Navy store, Salem Army-Navy. You could go in there and get a cashier's check, or it was next to there. It was an old, uh, it looked like a convenience store shop run by, I think, Asian people, and they, they sold everything. You could buy a Peking duck and a pack of smokes next to each other. And you'd have to go in there and get a cashier's check and bring it to her. So she'd get her money, she'd get her letter, and then here's the kicker. I can't leave the state, and my mother lives in Epping. So I said to her, uh, what do I got to do to go see my mom? She goes, well, you have to let us know what time you're going, what car you're taking, who you'll be with. You'll have to check in when you get up there. You blah, 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 blah. They, they went through this process that was like, well, and I had to get a letter signed by her and her boss saying that this is where I would be and it could be verified. Like, holy mother of fuck. Like, seriously? So if I decide on my way to my mother's to rob a jewelry store, some something in this process is going to prevent that? 
No, it's, it really doesn't work, guys. I, you know, whatever you're thinking about, oh, was he on probation? Oh, pro Every time you hear that he committed a crime and he was on probation, guess what? <clears throat> there was no way to prevent it unless he was committing the crime during the probation appointment. That's the only way that, that was ever going to be thwarted. So they tell me I can't see my mother. There's just something about that whole thing that makes you feel more powerless than ever, especially as an ex-con. So when we talk about what 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 this whole thing has done to me, what has this how has this whole thing changed me? I am now scarlet lettered, and I've talked about this. You can go back and listen to. Um, Episode three, what's it, uh, ex-con in America and how my brother almost shot me. Because um, I go into depth about that, in depth about that. But this, it, in college, I thought that I could go because I was going to go for a master's degree and then a doctor's, go as far as I can. And, and that's when I picked up personal training. And I was going to personal train at night, go to school in the day and go as far as I could so I could put some space between me getting out of prison and me entering the workforce. But then... Any part-time job, I go to fill out. I got to check off whether or not I've been convicted of a felony. So I start studying for the personal training exam, the ACE personal training exam. And I take that and I go and I apply to Bally's Total Fitness. And for those of you that don't know Bally's Total Ripoff, it's the very first club that ever put you under a contract. Some of you might still owe Bally's money. Some of you might still be getting a collection letter from... <laughs> From Bally's total ripoff, you know, saying you owe us this amount. But, uh, you know, I started working there as a personal trainer and I crushed it. It's so funny. My dad, for my, our entire life was like, you guys would be great in sales because my dad eat, slept, drank, stank, shit, sales. And he's like, you guys would be great at it. I wish you would get into it. It's a very rewarding life. And we all hated it. Me and my brother hated it. Still hate it. But I was good at it. As much as I hated it, I could do it. I could say, hey, listen, it's, it's, it, it, because it was absurd to me that I had to stand in front of you and convince that you needed what I had to sell you. I had to convince you of that. Excuse me, your cholesterol is 9,000. And you're going to say, man, I don't think I want to spend money on this. This is crazy. Why don't you take the amount of money you spent on the food to get you here and put that into, you know what I mean? And I, God, it makes me sound so discriminative of overweight people and I guess maybe I am exposing that here but again season three psychology here we are now I get the job I have to answer the question have I ever been convicted of a felony I answer the question I get the job I'm working there this is great I got a job I got employment now how am I going to take care of this mom situation what am I going to do about my mom who is up in Epping New Hampshire who can't travel back and forth down to PBD to visit me I, her life it has a number on it the days are limited fuck you fuck you fuck you so I started going I started going without permission now understand that probation every day gets multiple reports from multiple jurisdictions around them and you know check them against the list of people on probation and they'll find out that you got arrested again the law is very patient Alba sits around and waits for me to fuck up so she can go to a judge and say, let's put him back in. So I was taking a very big risk, but this seriously, you know, at that point, you could put a, a sack of jewels in front of me and say, hey, is the risk worth this that you just took? Would you go back to prison for this sack of jewelry? And I will tell you, no. A good friend of mine just asked me that question. How much money would it take for you to go back? There isn't any. There isn't any amount of money to, for me to put my brain through what prison did to me. What did it do? I am an absolute consummate loner. Chronic loner. Now, I feel like I have to qualify that. When I got out, I suffered tremendous anxiety any time you put me in a situation around normal people. But that was always a thing for me. The reason I loved cocaine was it was the first time that drug allowed me to step outside of my personality, which said, don't trust anybody, don't talk to anybody, don't tell anybody about you, don't, I don't want them to find out about my life or what I'm facing at home. I don't want them to meet my mother. I don't want them to meet my family. Don't have a girlfriend. Don't have a girlfriend. 
Um, so that was already such a, a part of the fabric of my being that to say that now is shortchanging you. It's shortchanging you of letting you know what what prison did to me. Now we went into getting out and you know just driving. God, if if I saw a cop car, be cool, be cool. I still get that very nervous feeling, even though I haven't jaywalked since I got out. <laughs> um, that it was it it has always been difficult for me to spend any time in the limelight. I hate bars. I hate crowds of people. I never like being so in a room so filled that it would take me more than a couple of steps to be outside of that building. Like, I don't like that. Um, I sleep every night and have since I've got out with a knife next to my bed. Is that a big thing? Is that on? No, it's not a big thing, but is when my night terrors came back. When I was a kid, I used to have night terrors. I would wake up in the middle of the night and my night terrors are uh, associated with feeling um, paralyzed with fear. I wake up out of a, of a deep sleep, eyes wide open, and I can't move because I am uh, aware of a presence in the room that I can't see. This freaking you out yet? Yeah, because this has happened to me since I was a kid sporadically as a kid. It didn't happen that often. But there were times I would wake up, be completely frozen. There would be something in my room that was causing me to, or I thought there was. That's, uh, if you look up, if you Google night terrors, there are a couple different types. Mine was always associated with a dark figure. When I got out of prison, that started regularly. On regular occasions. I would wake up and my grandmother lived next to a funeral home. If that <laughs> got to the point where I ended up like smudging the room with sage. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but Jesus, like I was that desperate that I was like, hey, I read somewhere that if I take some sage and bundle it up and light it and smoke the room, that it'll keep that shit out of there. Did not. It did not. And I regulate my migraines tripled in frequency. Tripled. I was getting them all the time to the point that they had to put me on Compazine, which because the intensity of my migraines was so bad that uh, it was the nausea I had to I had to deal with. One, I don't know if I've said this in the last podcast, but uh, they gave me Compazine for it. One guy gave me a suppository. I think he was trying to figure out whether or not, how bad do you think the pain is? He was trying to figure out whether or not I was really in pain because at that point they were starting to doubt whether or not people were having migraines with such frequency because the level of pain that they were associated with. So it was one of those fucking things because they couldn't figure it out. They were like, well, is it really happening? It's like fibromyalgia right now. Like it's recognized now, probably only so Big Pharma can come up with a pill for it. But um, there's a lot of doctors out there that feel like it is a more of a psychological disorder. Sorry to anyone out there that may have it. It sounds awful, but that's how migraines were treated back then. Getting them all the time, like leaving work on a regular basis, like having to leave anything on a regular basis. School, couldn't go to school. Uh, getting them probably once a week at least. Okay. The paranoia about being free was almost as bad because I, the paranoia that somebody would come and jeopardize the freedom that I had just gotten back, the freedom that I had spent three years of my sentence thinking about getting back again was now the most precious thing in the world to me. And I was so afraid that I wasn't strong enough to prevent someone from putting me in a situation that would jeopardize it. That's the mind, that's the mind play. That's what's going on. That's what makes you crazy. It almost makes you crazy to the point where I could minorly tiny fraction of me understand why somebody would want to go back. But that, that's short-lived because, like I said, you could present me with a foolproof plan to do a job that would make me rich for the rest of my life on a level that I you know, couldn't possibly imagine. No. Fuck no. Because whatever you think you're getting in reward, you know, the consequences tend... You never... There is no consequence-free way to do a score like that. No way. It just doesn't exist. You've seen too many movies where it just goes horribly wrong. 
very few movies about the the robbers riding off into the sunset with their wares unless you walked away on the first job and never went back. So. Prison changed how close I can get to people. And that's certainly a scar that, you know, I walked into adulthood with anyway. But what ended up driving me most into Bob's arms, my therapist's arms, was my first girlfriend outside of prison. Again, I don't, I doubt any, any, <laughs> I doubt my first girlfriend outside of prison is listening. But if she is, I'm going to keep her name out of it. And I'm going to just talk about it. And I met her at a store that I was working at. Uh, called Stay Young Health and Nutrition. And it was on this shitty part of 114. Like there was an IHOP on 114. On your way to the North, uh, the North Shore Mall. And... It was... <laughs> no, the Liberty Tree Mall. Okay, so there's the North Shore Mall. Which was the North Shore Shopping Center. But then right down 114 a little further was the um, the other one. And on your way to that one where there was an Inn and Hope. I remember Inn and Hope. My mother loved that store. Inn and Hope was a little... It was like a Kmart. It was like a Caldor. But it had... The, I think it had more of an arts and crafts sort of section that my grandmother loved and my mother loved. So we went there all the time. Loved that little mall. And uh, it was a building that was sort of set back behind an old Strawberries, which was a place that sold CDs and tapes. Ladies and gentlemen, tape recordings of artists that ancient technology there was a huge store it was two levels you could go in and you could buy singles oh my god it was crazy think of how much of that shit is in landfills these days it makes you want to puke and behind that was stay young health and nutrition big big store it was about 5,000 square feet and they were going to fill it with all this organic stuff because it was going to compete with what was the beginning of Whole Foods, but was at that point Bread and Circus. For those of you who don't know, Whole Foods started as Bread and Circus and at one point acquired Bread and Circus and acquired a bunch of stores like it that were popping up that were farm-to-table, organic, Whole Foods type of places. I walk in and I get the job as a potential manager or a position that I was going to grow into as manager. I had the personal training background. I had a nutrition background because I was a personal trainer. In that, I could stand there and tell you that you needed more protein. Like At that point, my belief as a trainer was, hey, you don't have a leg. Uh, you're not getting enough protein. You're in a wheelchair because you're not getting enough vitamin B. You, know, you, need, some, uh, you need spirulina uh, if we're ever going to get your kid to not be autistic anymore. <laughs> like, And I was reading reams of books from these fucking idiots that thought that, you know, these vitamins and, and doing, you know, cleanses and all this other stuff could get you healthy. But I've always, just like with psychology and with everything else, has said, okay, I, I like this discipline. I, I want to know everything there is about this topic. So I'll read as many books as I can about it. And the only thing that I end up walking away actually believing and incorporating into my life is the stuff that overlaps. So if Joe says A plus B equals C and this dude says A plus B equals C and he's got a, he says, but as the A plus B equals C, you should shove something up your ass, a banana to get more vitamins. Hey, going to skip the banana part, but let's go on to, hey, this other guy says I should also be, you know, squirting vitamin B, you know, <laughs> into my nipples because, but, you know, there is some psychos out there that have these really crazy ideas of, you know, you got 19 pounds of meat still stuck in your body. Well, my grandmother lived to 103, so maybe that beef served a purpose. It's cold in New England. My point is, is that that is the point that, you know, I continued to develop intellectually in a way that started to have me actually believe that I was smart, man. I could go into Bally's. I believe that my my success at Bally's as the number one trainer there from the get-go, beginning of my career, I've been number one trainer in a lot of places that I've gone. Not everywhere. Equinox, I'd, I'd share the number one spot, but that place, you know, you miss one appointment and you get knocked off the top spot. But I always believed it was because of my bullshitting skills. 
and it, and I always believed it was because I was very upfront about saying, listen, you, you got to put the work in. I was one of those guys. So yeah, you can drink protein and you can do this and you can do that. But really it's about putting the work in. Get, you know, once you're doing it six days a week consistently, then we'll talk about the other stuff. Because that, that's, that's, a, that's a fundamental. But again, uh, I was sat down on a regular basis by my bosses. And, and I had a female boss that tried to bang me on a regular basis. Yeah, I was sexually harassed at that job. I'm proud to say it. I'm proud to say it because it makes me feel hot. It makes me feel sexy. So yeah, I was hot enough for her to <laughs> risk her job. Uh, but on top of that, I was continually sat down about comments. And, and you know, if I went in in a bad mood, um, my sarcasm would tear you to shit. And I'm sorry, you know, you know, a lot of us comedians, you know, we want to be roasters and very few comedians are really great at it. But, um, you know, if, if you want to go head to head with me in a, in a sarcasm fight, I'll fucking cheat to win. And this was the beginning of me having, having spent, spending my time in my employment history, flirting with the idea that I could be fired because of an attitude I wasn't always sure or knew that I was displaying. So my anger was spilling out like fucking, I had a Pez dispenser for anger that sometimes I opened up and you got a little treat and sometimes my mouth opened up and you got sprayed with acid. And it was affecting my ability to function. Altered Man has to go into part two because I've gone on for almost an hour now and there's so much other stuff to talk about because I'm trying to get, I'm trying to help you understand how altered I was and altered I am through experiences because I don't want to just sit here and like I sat down earlier to make a list. I got a list right here if you guys can hear it. It's written on this envelope right here and it, I can't sit here and I can't give you a list. I can't say, uh, these are, I did and I do cannot maintain stable relationships and has difficulty, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to do that because it won't help you come to the end of season three with a better understanding of who I am. And I am doing season three because this is a trilogy. This is, we fucked up and we did these things. This was the consequence. And here's the aftermath and how I pulled myself out of the hole I dug myself in that happened to be farther reaching than I ever thought it would be. It, it reached and reaches farther than ever walking out of prison did and will. So it's going to take us a long time to answer the question of what happened and who am I now and how did I get out of that? Why am I not Kev right now? You know, and Kev has his struggles and, and but, but prison changes you forever and there's no going back to what I ever was, not that I would want to. And there's not many places in my timeline that I could look back and, yeah, put me there. There's no point in my timeline that you could, you and I could sit down and watch the whole thing that you would say, hey, Brian, why did you do that? That I could give you a logical answer. Other than, well, this was the time I was really angry and I, my dad didn't love me. And I could give you excuses, but I couldn't give you reasons. So it's going to take us some time to weed through season three. And I got a lot of stuff for you, man. I, I actually thought that I was going to have anything. So number one, I got a story from dad. Dad has been baiting me with this call for months now. And he's like, dad, just tell me, son, whenever you want me to call you, I got a really funny story about when I went to Cambridge. And I'm going to play it for you just because I've had a fan reach out and said, I miss your dad because I miss hating him. I have no one to hate in your brain in your podcast anymore, which is a compliment to me. Thank you very much. I'm going to play that for you and uh, might have a story at the end. I'm going to do a story tonight at Sick Puppies. Um, and big, big, big announcement. I am I am uh, confirmed for March 26th of 2022 to be in the Oak Room in Boca Raton, Florida. The entire room is mine. I'm going to try to do two shows and I'd love to sell them out. So more information is going to be coming every episode to try to get you people. Um, I got two people coming. Patty and Pam are, are uh, booked, I believe. So I got out of state people already coming down here. Blaine and Tommy and Chris. 
I'm shouting out to all you guys to get your ass down here for my very first produced BS Productions comedy show. And I can't wait. I can't wait for that. I know it's so early because we're still not even in 2022 yet, but hopefully Omicron doesn't fuck it up. But, uh, you know, I don't, I, the new term will be not the show goes on rain or shine. The show goes on Omicron or none. <laughs> so really excited about that. Really excited to be able to bring you more content throughout season three. Got a lot of stuff for you. And it is always my hope that you hear something in here that'll help you in your life. So there's a lot of bonus episodes coming up in season three. I'm going to do some, I'm going to tell you about some self-help books and some self-help ideas that I have written that I, that, um, again, help me. They help me in, in my philosophy and and in my life and how to be happy. And I hope they will help you. So we are on point. We're plowing through. So glad to have presented this to you guys. Welcome to season three of the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. Take care of yourself. Hi, son. You there? I'm here. All right. So what do you got? Uh, When they transferred me down to Cambridge from New Hampshire, they put me in their holding cell. Now, that area was made for about two dozen people but there were over 30 of us in it so it was a little little crowded well about five minutes went by and one of the inmates that worked in that area came down and a call for kevin sabalewski's father so i went over he says hey we've been expecting you we could heard that you're coming down today everything is ready for you so when i turned around i noticed i had a little bit more room than i had well, then one of the cops came down. He says, Sabalewski? I says, yeah, right here. He says, uh, you're all set. We heard you were coming down. We got you all straightened out in the worker's dorm. I says, great. When I turned around, I had even more room. <laughs> then the captain came down, introduced himself, talked to me for a while, said, you're all set. We got you straightened out. You'd be all right. When I turned around, I had half the fucking cell to myself. Nice. People didn't know who I was, what I was, and they really didn't want to know at that point. And then about 10 minutes went by, and they pulled me out. I thought that might get a few chuckles. That was uh, pretty much what happened when I got to Cambridge, because Kev had got sent to Hamden County. Yep. So he was he was sitting in Springfield for a while, and then they had to bring him back because they, we had... Uh, I think we had a hearing the next day, and that's why they had they got me in Valley Street to bring me down. How long were you in Valley Street? Well, which one was Valley Street? Cambridge? No, New Hampshire, Manchester. Oh, three days. Oh no, no, right uh, in Mass? the jail. In the jail was almost uh, nine months, ten months. Okay, because I remember that was the first time you and I had spoken since right, the arrest. Right. And then I was, I was in the Concord prison for three days. And do you remember the Jolly Rancher you gave me? No. You had Why? somebody come and <laughs> you had remember the cop that used to work out at DR Fitness that was a he was a guard at Valley Street. Yeah, you vaguely, sent him, I him. So you sent him over to me to tell right? me to go to church, and I went to I just church. I was sitting in church, and and uh. <laughs> You gave me like a lemon jolly right I can hear you now. Oh, would you lose me? You're breaking up on me. Oh, sorry. I'm not. It's you. Are you driving? I don't know if it's or me or you, son. Uh-oh. Oh, I can't see shit. How you doing? Great. <laughs> Welcome again. All right, we're gonna do a little. We're gonna do something a little different. Um, since I have my podcast and I've had just an entirely fucked up life, you are gonna challenge me now with a word. Any word that you can think of, you're gonna yell it out. Don't do it. Shh. Don't do it yet. But um, from that word, I'm gonna tell some random story from my life, and I hope you find it interesting. You guys ready? Go, yell out a word. Harlem Globetrotters. Harlem Globetrotters. Yes. Fucking Harlem Globetrotters. 
Har- Harlem Globetrotters? <laughs> Who said that? Henry? Yeah. Fucking Henry. <laughs> if you haven't met Henry, I hope you punch him at the end of the show. Okay, <laughs> guys, I'm from Boston. Anybody here from Boston? Okay. Just put your hand up. <laughs> guys, I just wanted you to know who the shitbags were. <laughs> just, so you, just so you know, it's a guy in the back and me. Um, the Harlem Globetrotters, uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience with. I only ever saw them on TV because we were poor. And I could never really go to the Fleet Center. It, well, the Garden back then. And the Boston Garden is where Larry Bird did fucking amazing things. And there was one time my mother was able to take me to the Garden to see Larry Bird. And here's what I remember. I remember anything about the game. I remember ever seeing Larry Bird. I didn't give a flying fuck about basketball. I was psyched about the peanut guy in the front. And if you've never been to Boston, and I don't know what happens in other cities, but there was always there's a peanut guy out in front, and he would stand behind stacks and stacks and stacks of tables of peanuts, bags of them folded up, stapled. And he would order it, and he would pick it up, and he would fucking chuck it at you <laughs> in the chest. And I was little, man. I was a little kid. It would fucking cave me in the chest, and uh, I would feel like I'm falling down. I equate that story to the first time that I was almost shot. Anyone here ever been shot? Boston guy, keep your fucking hand down. We know. <laughs> we know you've been shot. We know we heard. Seriously, Boston's just an entire fucking. Massachusetts in general is just a state full of dicks. It's a state full of entire fucking cocksuckers. I hate them all, including myself. But I was almost shocked. And and I say that the force of that bullet hit the pillow next to me as, as if it were a bag of peanuts. So let me explain. My gun knowledge is limited. Okay, when I was a kid, my dad didn't teach us shit. You could ask him any question in the world and he would answer it, but he never turned it into a lesson. So I entered adulthood. What am I supposed to do with this? And, and it's frustrating because my dad was the last generation that you could put in a field, come back in a week, and there'd be a fucking house. But he couldn't impart any of that wisdom onto us, me and my brother, because... He didn't like manual labor. He did it, but he didn't like it. So when my dad finally got to the point that he was really, really comfortable, and you could say he was you know, kind of rich for the 1980s, because if you weren't selling coke, <laughs> you weren't rich. But my dad was in this position that, that he made pretty decent money, and he had a condom, and he had a gun to protect that condom. And I found that gun at 20 years old when he was away in Hawaii and I was home from college. If you've never held a gun for the first time, and this is Florida, you've all held guns. Some of you are holding guns now. I would appreciate it if you wouldn't shoot them at me. But um, when a gun is in your hands, especially if you've ever been bullied, it's the most powerful fucking thing you've ever felt in your life. But at the same time, because you've been bullied, you're afraid of it because you're like, I could fuck some people up with this. And that's exactly how I felt. So I looked at this gun. It was a little 22. It was really hard to pull out of the holster. I pulled it out and I knew, okay, there's a little switch over here. There's a safety and there's a little button. I click it and the fucking clip hits my foot. This is where I should have ended this excursion because <laughs> this just showed how clueless. I was like, ow! No Clint Eastwood that a movie that I've ever seen started with Clint pulling it into out. So I knew I was in trouble. But then when the clip fell, I'm like, this thing isn't loaded. I'm fine. And I started the James Bond thing. I started pointing that gun all over the place. And fucking two minutes into me doing that, boom, the fucking thing went off. I was so scared because the first thing that happened in my brain were all the things that could happen. I thought that there were 10 kids jumping rope outside my door that took the same bullet and it went through 10 of them and they were all lying on the street dead. That's where my brain went. So I sat there and I waited for the sirens to get closer and closer and closer and finally the SWAT team to come in, but none of them came. Nobody came. 
So I CSI that motherfucker. I instantly went into my dad's fucking garage and he had tool putty. Does anyone know, I mean wood putty. Does anyone know what wood putty is? Yes. Oh my God, go to hell. Cause I didn't fucking know. I take this shit into the... Fuck. My penis just shrank like three and hers just grew. I take the wood putty and I go and I start looking around the kitchen. I couldn't find it. It was a 22. They make little tiny holes, but if it's in your head, you're fucked. And I find the hole. It was right below. It was right below a cabinet. I plug that thing up. I put the gun back. This is the end. I'm riddled with guilt, and my brother comes home, and my brother was on steroids at the time. Anyone here on steroids? Henry, come on. <laughs> Alex Gannon, you saw that motherfucker last week. He was four feet tall. That's steroids. That was the last comedian, guys. Your fucking memory sucks. But okay, let's. <laughs> My brother comes home. I, I, I'm so riddled with guilt, I tell him about it. And my brother was awesome. My brother's the kind of person that will tell you the dangers of addiction while he's snorting coke. <laughs> he's like, uh, it's, really, it's really bad for you. So he went into a lecture about gun safety for me. He went, he found the gun, and he came out, and he took it out of the holster, and he was kind of holding it, and he's like, you don't fucking understand guns, you don't understand firearms, and boom, the fucking thing went off and hit the pillow next to me. And that's how my brother almost shot me. And that's what the improv is. He's gonna come out and improv off of with no props. Guys, come on out.